Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Jeremy Wooden. Hello, Jeremy. Yeah, good evening, Stuart. Good evening. Second appearance on the podcast, I do believe. Yeah, I'm going for the record. You... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you've, been, you've got a few to catch up. I've got a couple of threes in there, so you, you know it's, it's a close run thing. Um, but we've not come in here to talk about uh, guest patterns. Um, we've come in here to talk about your new film. So if I was to say, um, London, Great Yarmouth, Norwich, Wakefield, Newcastle, what would that add up to, Jeremy? Well, it led up to the the movie Burning Men, yes. uh, road movie. Okay, but not but not Wakefield. Is it I Wakefield's not? I thought it's his mother's in Wakefield. No, his mum's in Hull. Right, is she from Wakefield? Yeah. Then I definitely heard no. the words Wakefield. Did you? No, no, she's from Hull, um, played by Denise Welch. Of course, it's Denise who's... Welch. Yeah, I got that bit. Apologies there, listener, <laughs> and uh, good job Jeremy's on it, on hand, the person that knows, rather than me that doesn't. Um, but do you want to give us a brief synopsis then, before I completely destroy everything that I've done about this podcast in the last four years? Um, uh, do you want to give us a brief synopsis yeah. to what Burning Men's about? Sure. Um, two wannabe young musicians, uh, Ray and Don, mm-hmm. are evicted from their London squat in Deptford. Mm-hmm. And they embark on a road trip to sell their prized vinyl collection. And um, along the way, things do not go as planned. No, this is true. This is true. So you, you co-wrote and directed this movie, yeah? Co-wrote, produced and uh, directed it, yeah. Okay. So in terms of co-writing it then, uh, you and Neil Spencer are the writers of this. Um, out of interest, is that Neil Spencer who used to edit The Enemy? It is, and uh, we wrote three short films together. Yeah. And also our first feature film, Bollywood Queen, we wrote together. So this is our second movie that we've written together, although it's my fourth feature film. Okay, okay. So it's interesting, obviously, that it's, it is, because I, co- I couldn't find out from, from Googling the two things whether or not it was that Neil Spencer. And obviously it makes sense, given it's about a band and 
uh, about music provenance and everything for a, for your co-writer to be from that background. Um, mm. Not just somebody, obviously, who you've collaborated with successfully already before. Um, <clears throat> so in that sense, how does... how uh, So how where, the, where was the idea for Burning Men, or how was the idea conceived? Where did that come from, for starters? Well, it's, um, it started a long time ago in my own head mm-hmm. when I used to run a uh, record um, and CD stand in Camden Market. Right, so um, we're literally coming direct off experience with this story then. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, back in the mid-90s, yeah. which um, I used to run once every two weeks in the Camden Electric Ballroom. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting talking to other vinyl and CD dealers, seeing what they did, seeing what, um, you know, what the... Um, uh, must have um, records vinyl were mm-hmm. at that time and uh and it, it emerged that people were after those rare vinyls and acetates which were worth five ten thousand pounds maybe a you know a Jimi hendrix white label which um you know no one had heard before whatever that suddenly comes into your possession mm-hmm. and basically it's riches you know it's treasure um, so that was one thing that was going on. Everyone's, you know, after a, a very rare um, acetate or vinyl. And the other thing that was going on was a couple of guys who had a store next to me, mm-hmm. a couple of young guys. Um, they were wannabe musicians and they were living in an old army truck, carrying around their vinyl collection and going to record fairs, selling vinyl, supporting their own musician band aspirations. Yeah. And and so you sort of got talking to them. I thought, oh, this is you know this really interesting couple of guys. And so the the original idea was it was called Vinyl Junkies, and yeah. it was about two record dealers, wannabe musicians, um, buying and selling discs, moving around the country, who wanted to go to the Burning Men Festival, mm-hmm. Burning Man Festival in in America, yeah. and. And they decided to call their band or their putative band the Burning Men. That's that's you know where the um, title comes from. Yeah. And and so this you have to remember this is sort of back in the in the mid nineties and it sort of went nowhere for a long time. And then um, and then Neil and I were walking over Hampstead Heath, <laughs> um, probably about two thousand six or seven, yeah. talking about uh, finally our second movie after a bit of a um, you know, eight year break. And, um, and I said, Oh, I really like to do something about that time when I was working the record fairs. And he said, Well, what sort of genre movie do you want to do? And I went, Well, I really like to do a road movie, but I don't know how this could work together. And we, um, we, yeah, you know, we sort of, you know, vibed it out and came to a sort of little storyline where we just thought, Okay, so. You know, a very valuable record comes into their possession and um, they think that's their ticket to the States. Um, the slightly more supernatural element to that record and the, the horror element, if you like, yeah. came, came, came probably about um, probably late um, 2000s. And um, and it came from us talking about um, records that 
um, have got hidden messages in them. Right. And I mean, everyone, you know, grew up with, you know, people saying, oh, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, if you play it backwards, then there's a hidden message in it. You know, this sort of um, idea that um, there was something else in there. And so we sort of followed that through and thought, well, okay, what if it was the actual record was a spell, an incantation that once played, then releases dark forces. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we sort of followed that on from then into new script versions and seeing where it went. How do, how do you and how do you and Neil operate then as co-writers? How how do you sort of divide the labour up, as it were, or well, develop, or, or develop the screenplay full stop? Well, we walk around a lot on Amstead <laughs> So 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 talking is an important part of the process for you. Oh, totally. And then we sit down, and mostly Neil sits at the computer and bashes it out, and I yeah. walk around um, talking a lot, and, uh, and and then we sort of get the structure down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, literally scene by scene, this happens in this scene, somebody might say this and whatever, just to get the story and the structure down. And then once we've sort of fleshed that out, then you just go, okay, now let's structure it into a proper final draft script. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you go on to the next phase. <clears throat> but just getting those ideas down, you know, crazy ideas to begin with, maybe, but Sooner or later, you know, the good stuff or whatever filters through. Well, for, 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 the, for, the, for, the, for the sort of inexperienced writer, mm. you might think of, you know, writing being something you put, you write down. What, what do you think are the benefits to developing a screenplay of talking it through before you commit anything to sort of paper, as it were? Well, um, it's different for me than for a lot of um, screenwriters because I co-write. Mm-hmm. And so having a screenwriting partner... Yeah. Um, I've always found is a a lot of fun, but also b um, takes away the isolation and the and the stress of not knowing if it's any good or not knowing whether you're on the right path, because you can you know you can uh, counteract each other's ideas, you can um, you can come up with new ideas, and somebody says uh, you know your writing partner says oh yeah I really like that, but what about this? You know, mm. so so it's a it's a good um, environment to 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 vibe off each other. The only problem being is that in the end, somebody has to sit down and type it into final draft format, script format um, on the computer. But if you've already sort of talked through possibilities, then <clears throat> in a way, it's more of a translation than it is an, an invention, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and I've always loved working like that. Um, I have, you know, tried my hand at a couple of scripts on my own and I quite like it, but, um, it just takes so long. <laughs> no, no, no. I totally with you. I totally with you. You're talking to someone who's 71 pages into a first draft as we speak this, at past four this afternoon. So I hear you. Well, well, indeed, you know, and, uh, and then you get to the point where you just think, is this any good or um that's that's, that's come... started at page five <laughs> <laughs> and then you come up with the killer idea you just come back from the pub and you go oh god it's a great idea and then you write it down and you go oh well um don't know about this um, who can i ask um and then you end up obviously talking to your partner in the next room and saying listen i've got this idea and they go well oh, i don't know <laughs> 
Exactly, exactly. Well, that's that's the writer's lot. But you're right, though. There is. I, I've I've heard this a lot in interviews with people that either are sort of co-writers or writers and directors who work closely together. That the whole talking the story through is almost like the more you talk about it, in a, in essence, what keeps getting talked about and what gets forgotten is what becomes the story. You know, so you naturally forget the bad stuff and the good stuff sticks. If that makes sense. Yeah. If you if you were taking the essence of what was your experiences and memories of the record fairs, and obviously combining that with, I'm guessing Neil's extensive experience of of the music industry and stuff, uh, and bands and whatever from his enemy days, uh, what what for you on this on the story you ended up creating were the main storytelling challenges for you? Because you've got quite a lot in there, haven't you? You've got a road, you've got a a, a band on the run, literally. You got the you know, mm. you, and, but then you have got this whole satanic thing that, that, that that's an umbrella over the top of it all yeah and um and it was one thing that we talked a bit about um uh, what genre is it um you know i love cross genre stuff so um i wasn't worried about mixing some other genres in there i mean you you you're working from the basis of a road movie mm-hmm which in English terms, a UK road movie is already a problem because what is a UK road movie? And uh, so you're, you're, you're kind of setting out on a, on a fairly limited genre straight away with road movie. Mm. And, you know, and is it all, is it a genre in this country even? It's definitely a genre in, in the States. Yeah. Um, but is a road movie a buddy movie? Um, with near dark um it's a horror road movie so um by its nature i think road movies do um overlap into different genres and so we wanted to um incorporate a couple of other um genre flavors in there uh, without one or the other taking over and um so you've got a you've got a kind of a buddy road movie mm. happening um, you've got a sort of psychological thriller happening with um, the supernatural elements and the visions that's going on in our lead character, Ray's head. Um, and you've got a romance as well going on, um, central romance between Ray and Susie, two of the characters. Hmm. And you've got, um, and also you've got um, hopefully a, a, a bit of a, an adventure and a bit of a thriller, and, and as soon as I say that, all of all of a sudden, like uh, you know, I have my commissioner's head on, and just go, Whoa, what is it then? And <laughs> you know, this happens all the time. And basically, you come down and go, well, it's a road movie, and stuff happens in a road movie. Yeah. You go from A to Z, and stuff happens, and it can go any way you want it to go. Now, it being a road movie, and obviously, you've mentioned the key characters that that involves, so. It was obviously important in the casting that you, you know, all parts, all parts, obviously, uh, but uh, in in sharp focus for most of the film is the characters of Ray and Don, and then mm. for most of the film as well, we have we we have Susie along for the ride as well. Yeah, the central trio. Mm. Um, well, um, first of all, getting that chemistry between Ray and Don, the two central buddies as it were um obviously the you know you know the state of play of um two guys who form a band you're into um keith richards mick jagger territory you know you're into basically a married couple Mm. and um you know probably a bickering married couple for most bands 
Um, and Neil and I talked a lot about that, about what are the um, things that constantly happen when you form a band and before you inevitably split up. Mm. You know, what are the what are the um, elements of um, conflict between band members? And so, you know, we we talked a lot about um, about what uh, defined those two characters. It all ended up being backstory, actually, you know, how they met and all the rest of it, which didn't make it into the film because, again, that wasn't what the film was going to be about. It wasn't about them as musicians. Will they succeed or not? It was about um, their relationship under stress in special circumstances on the road. Will they get to America and fulfill their dream of getting to Memphis and finally their mojo as musicians? That was the, the dream. That was the destination, the mission. And uh, But along the way, obviously, stuff comes up from the past. And um, so we wanted to cast those two central characters to make them different. And although um, uh, Aki in the, in the role as, um, as Don, yeah. Um, obviously, obviously, um, a rising star black actor, yeah. but it wasn't written for a black actor. And right. I just happened to know <clears throat> Aki and he'd sent me a really nice, um, uh, self tape audition tape, um, for something completely different. And, and I just thought, I, I want to work with Aki. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe he could, you know, work as Don, you know, we'd have to sort of, um, change it or maybe we wouldn't have to change it and so I met him and I talked to him about it and he said well what I love about this role is that it's not written for a black actor it's just written for a musician yeah yeah yeah. and I went went, well cool you know then it's yours to run with you know whatever else you bring to it is you and and so um that was Aki you know Aki's entry into the into the film and then Ed um Ed uh was um, someone who I didn't know. Um, I found him through his agent, and okay. I, f- I found him on his agent's website because Ed could drive and play the guitar, <laughs> right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, I kind of liked his CV. I saw his um, his low budget film um, um, to dream, and really liked him in that. Met him, really liked him, and I and I just thought, oh, he could bring something to this, yeah. and and um, and then I found out that he couldn't drive very well and he couldn't play guitar very well. <laughs> uh, isn't this always the way with actors? You know, I can ride a horse, I can sword fight. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I've done kung fu for ten years, you know, I, I, <laughs> and then you find out that of course they haven't. Um, but um, he could do both those things reasonably well. So um, he didn't need to be, you know, an expert in them. And uh, but most of all, um, he was OK. He's a Londoner, you know, from Muswell Hill. And, and the character was from Hull. And so the main thing for me was, can you convince me with a, an authentic Hull accent? And, uh, and he came with this mix. Ronson accent, Mick Ronson guitar, guitarist from Hull. Yeah, so it turned out that, um, you know, Aki wanted to play it, um, not East End, he wanted to play it Romford. He wanted to play it sort of Essex. Got you. And, 
and um, and uh, Ed wanted to wanted to stay with um, the most authentic hurl he could do, uh, and it's a tough accent, the hurl accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but watching the pair of them, though, it's quite. I mean, having worked with bands and, and I've been a music journalist myself, is mm. is um, one of the things that comes across quite well is is the is the idea of like you said the married couple, but just. Because bands like no, probably like no other job in the, in many senses. I guess a film crew comes close. Is you spend so much time together in content, you know, in tour vans, in venues, and then hotels, and then tour vans, and then venues, and then hotels, and you know, you're never apart from each other. So therefore, your your relationship is is always tight, but also strained. You're lo- fiercely loyal to one another, but you can fall out the drop of a hat. How did you help them to foster that relationship as as two actors come in together as characters? Well, that's an interesting point. I, um, the the thing with uh, the conflict within band members, you know, the two lead band members as as, as such, is um, um, they know each other so well. Mm. So it's kind of like in the end, you know. A could say something and B could say something else, but they've had that conversation before, they've had that argument before, and and so they kind of, you know, they're on a bit of a, um, a replay uh, on their relationship, and and I think this is partly in the film as well, is that their relationship is still go is is going nowhere, it's still on a loop, and and their and their ambitions as musicians and as a band is going nowhere because they're still on this loop. And nobody can break that because uh, their mindset is such that Ray wants to do this and um, Don wants to do that. Ray can't write any songs because, um, you know, he's got mental problems and he's not feeling it. And then Don gets um, kind of exasperated with Ray because it's kind of like, well, you're the singer-songwriter. Can't you just write a song and then we might have a hit? So it's, it's it's the constant sort of history of of a band um, a band's life really, and I think you know we talked about that with the two actors and said this is sort of a given for us you know this isn't what the movie's about but this is the backstory this is the backdrop to your relationship. Meanwhile, within your relationship is this thing's happening happened you've lost your squat in Deptford you're on the road you haven't got any money um you've got to write songs you've got to um, go and play some gigs you think that might be in America and and you you, you're hoping that you can fulfill these dreams you go out in the void and then along the way you meet people you meet Susie this this girl who threatens to split you up um in a kind of a Fleetwood Mac um, kind of way. <laughs> um, and in so many, you know, rock and roll stories, there's always a girl. Mm. And, yeah. And, oh, and also, you know, I mean, you start, you start the story off with, with there being the problem of a girl in their, both in, the, in their relationship with it, in Don and, um, Don and Ray's relationship anyway. So it's a, good, it's a good constant there. And I think what's great about having... To the two main characters being in a band at the start of the film is it establishes all those elements of loyalty and sacrifice without having to show it because we understand that as red, don't we? In, in terms, so when so when the shit hits the fan later on in the film, we're not surprised how they behave in terms of getting each other's back, are we? Yeah, you know, all, no, the, all, in, in... all the squabbling 
is out the window when the shit hits the fan. They're there for each other, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. Now, being a road movie, um, it's not always the case, but certainly in yours, it's arguable, it's arguable that the star of the film is possibly the car. <laughs> the car's always the star in a road movie. I but think. this one, this one is particularly a star. I mean, it stands out a mile from 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 every other car on the road. So, do you want to tell us what it is and how you got your hands on that? Well, the car was cast first of all. Okay. Uh, as Neil and I were writing in his front room yeah. uh, years ago, mm-hmm. op- opposite his house, um, this car sat on the street. Okay. And uh, and so I remember once looking out the window and we were talking about what kind of car is it, whatever. And and I went, well, it'd be like that car over there. And he looked out the window and went, oh, Paul's car, you mean? And uh, I went, yeah, Paul's car. Who's Paul? And he goes, oh, Paul, he's an improvisational jazz musician who um, owns that car. I'm sure he'll let us use it. Um, and that was like sort of 10 years ago or whatever. And... So we immediately went over the road and said, Paul, you know, we're writing this script. If we put your car in the script, could we get it if we ended up making this film? And he went, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, certainly. And so it was like, that was the cast straight away. You are cast. That car is cast. And, um, and, and, and then, you know, visually, we just sort of knew that this was this bonkers, um, kind of, uh, uh, retro car, but also rough arty car as well. That was. I was going to say, do you want to tell people what 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 actual car it is and what what decade it's from? Uh, okay, it's an Amazon, uh, Volvo Amazon, yeah, um, nineteen sixty nine, right. And um, Paul Shearsmith, who owns it, mm-hmm. um, musician, an all round top guy from Tagcaster, yeah, um, who came on the road with us as well. Um, he has created many happenings around this car, including putting it in art gallery um, and also playing it percussion-wise. Um, so, what, literally the, playing the car? Literally having percussionists play this car. Fantastic. And so it's, it is a star in its own right. And um, it was so nice that Paul was able to contribute that to the film and also drive it around when we were on tour. And when we were on tour and when we were filming, he always sussed out the best pubs in the area to go and drink. Fair enough. So, so it's kind of like, where do we go for a drink after the show? Oh, Paul will know. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it's, you're right. It's got a real sort of arty, bashed up feel to it. And obviously, its mm. its its period gives it a unique look compared to the kind of you know the you know the sort of homogeny of car design in this day and age. Mm. Um, so it's almost like it is in many senses. It's a it's a it's a it acts as a metaphor for our two our two heroes in a way, doesn't it? It does. It's it's kind of um, they can never get it together to do the final paintwork on it. Mm. And in a way, they don't want to do the final paintwork because they like it as it is. You know, they like the band as it is and they like their life in the squat as it is. So there's no imperative to spray the car to change their lifestyle to actually write a song. Mm. And, and so in that sense, totally, it's a metaphor. Um, but, but also, you know, in the, in the story, in the, in the film, you know, one of the girls says, you know, wh- where did this come from? 
and um, and Dom says, "Oh, we bought it for the cover of our first album." That's right, yeah. And, sh- and she says, "Well, what's the album called?" And he says, "Well, we haven't made it yet." <laughs> and then you, I think you just realise that um, you know they're getting ahead of themselves here. No, it's good. It's a good. You, you definitely show the kind of dreamer element that you probably need to be that deluded if you're going to try and be a band anyway. But but also there comes a point where maybe as the film is pro- the film probably catches them at the point where if we're all honest reality is biting them now and maybe the dream is over but they're not they're not ready to stop yet and so that's what makes it dramatic. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, so you, you were telling me before we started that you're uh, exploiting the uh, the car in a in a kind of marketing sense to help get people to notice the film. So <clears throat> what what you've been up to? uh yeah the um the car has been turned into a 2d um uh cut out and keep car um so basically you get a postcard mm-hmm. and you cut it out and you flip the tabs over and you glue it together and then you've got a 3d car Fantastic. and uh, then we're hoping that people will make this 3d volvo and put it in strange places photograph it and put it on Instagram and uh, they potentially could win a prize. Fantastic. Which... We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can find find themselves a car. No, totally. And this is something that Paul had already done um, with his Volvo at um, one of his events. So it was already there. It was already been created. Uh, um, and I, I really love this idea and it, and he'd already made one and I'd seen it, you know, on the kitchen table. I just thought, this is such a great marketing tool, but also, um, you know, how, how brilliant to um, have this crazy car as a 3D toy on your on your kitchen table. <laughs> so, Blood Moon was the last time I spoke to you about making a film. Um, yeah. And in that, you, you went off into the Kent countryside, single location, and shot your film there, yeah? Yeah. Now, you couldn't have done the more opposite with Burning Men, you've sat, you've started in London, and you've gone all the way up to Newcastle. So, for the for the uh, for the listener, for the filmmaker listening in now, what would you say would be a major lesson learned about moving from place to place to shoot a film? And um, and what do you think the benefits are to you as a filmmaker compared to that idea of the con- making a film in such a contained location? Well, um, both films had limited budget i mean Uh both were very tiny budgets and i could never have done a western um period western without having found that reenactment society in kent yeah um, which came as a 360 studio and we talked about that yeah and and so that that meant that that movie could happen as a low budget movie so when we right from the get-go when we were writing this movie it was always about this is a micro budget movie and we have to be able to achieve this um, within a month of shooting. And um, that involves all the locations, all the characters. And we have to tailor make it to um, that um, idea. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as we wrote it, it was about, oh, we, we can't afford that. And, oh, that's too far to go from there to there. So we, we literally wrote the route um, to make it practically doable. So um, and then we went and and scouted the route. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, myself and and 
co-producer Fiona Graham went on the route and we yeah. we traveled we traveled it and we literally mapped out every every turning how long it took from one place to the other where we might stay overnight um all the way from here to Newcastle mm-hmm. and and so um before we even started to go into pre-production we knew that we could achieve stuff practically um within a four week shoot got you um as the as the uh, budget went down we ended up having to do it in 23 days Gee so it was, yeah 24 locations in 23 days and 20 people cast and crew on the road um with i think it was six to eight vehicles and that was it that was the lean and mean um theater technical troupe and uh, and then we just went and did it, and and we wouldn't have been able to do that without that amount of pre-production research, and knowing that this is what we wanted to achieve. If we'd have just said, okay, we're going to do a um, a road movie, and uh, you know, we're going to have a whole um, pantechnican circus and a camera um, and lighting wagon and stuff like that, um, we would just got bogged down. Because, um, you know, having the circus on the road, you know, the whole team, that sort of size, um, mm. just would have got in the way. So it was all about being lean and mean and, and also the shooting style, um, having handheld camera. And originally before I decided to shoot it POV style, it was just going to be a handheld camera kind of verite style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was also practically, um, driven because you know we didn't want to be setting up tripods and uh, camera cranes and all the rest of it and and having car rigs and whatever we just wanted to be on the shoulder of the camera operator i mean i'm, I'm going to say stylistically i mean it, it, it uh it's very much in keeping with um your work you did with on peep show that uh where we were literally the camera at times um what was what was the what was the what was the decision, decision behind that to sort of because it's quite quite a recognisable style, isn't it? Yeah, and also quite a radical style in the sense that um, nothing has been, <laughs> nothing's been done like this before, and so that was quite a big um, decision making process to actually decide to do it. But um, uh, no, I, by doing you know Peep Show, and before you know we did Peep Show Series One, um, I did two um, fifty minute pilots and you know to to formulate the visual language and and basically nobody really apart from me knew how this was going to fit together because again nobody had done it before so um and during that time and during making peep show it was like well how would this work as a as a movie and there was talk of doing a peep show movie at the time and then people went no no it's a sitcom it's tv and that sort of went away. And then um, I pitched this movie out in 2010 and um, a couple of industry friends of mine went, well, we kind of like the idea and we like it, but um, it's just missing something special about it and something that says this is you as a filmmaker. And, and then I sort of went away and mused over that for a while and thought well what have i wanted to do for a while as a filmmaker that i haven't done and one was do a pov movie that nobody else had done before and i thought well it's a low budget movie 
if I don't do this, nobody else is going to do it. And, you know, for better or for worse, let's just go for it. And so it was it was a sort of a devil may care kind of attitude, but also driven aesthetically by my love for French New Wave and free cinema. I was going to say, it, it still it still it brings you there as well, even though contemporary wise, I and obviously knowing that you worked on Peep Show, it's 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 hard not to make that connection. But actually, I mean, the 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 um, the, the idea of holding sort of close up on people's faces with the face centre frame is, a, is is very much that kind of exciting, we've got handheld cameras, 60s French cinema, isn't it? You know, the, the ability to do that quick and fast was was what made, I guess, part, part of that exciting, wasn't it? So that's, that is the lineage, isn't it? Yeah, and um, interesting, you know, when, when I was researching, um, uh, doing, you know, this technique of um, point of view for um for for the tv show for peep show yeah. um going back into film history and 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 looking at when the first pov shots were done which was in the early 1900s and it really? was all it was all like 1903 <clears throat> and it was always shots looking through keyholes down telescopes and always there was a accompanying shot that showed what that person was doing this is mm. the shot of the person looking down a telescope and then you cut to the shot of what they're seeing down the telescope yeah 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 and a lot of it was sort of vignetted so that it was like yes it's through a keyhole it's down a, a telescope just in case you get confused that this is not their point of view um and it kind of didn't catch on for a long time and, and the person who really took hold of this and ran with it was alfred hitchcock and um, point of view shots in Alfred Hitchcock are rampant, um, you know, not only uh, rear window, but um, uh, the birds, for example. Yeah, yeah, of the course, point, yeah. The point of view of the birds looking down on Bodega Bay. Yeah. I mean, that's a bird's eye view, if anything, isn't of it? Of course, yeah, 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 never thought of that, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, you know, tracking that back and seeing how filmmakers had used POV. And when I, when, I, when I did Peep Show, the only real precursor was Lady in the Lake, um, this very weird film noir from 1949, I think it was. Mm-hmm. All one shot, um, POV from the detective's point of view. And you can imagine the size of the cameras at that time, and yeah. they trundled, they trundled along. I mean, literally, you can almost hear the dolly wheels turning. Um, but um, groundbreaking for late forties, of course, uh, yeah. and, and then nothing. And then, um, obviously, you know, our, our little series in the early noughties, uh, and then Maniac arrived. Um, Elijah Woods um, POV through the eyes of a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You only ever saw his face in reflection, didn't you? Exactly. Um, and that was a, you know, what was that? Ten years after Peep Show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was single POV, so it was still only just one, uh, one aspect of the story. You know, see the story through one person's eyes. Mm. And then Hardcore Henry, the, you know, the um, action. Hero, anti-hero, Iggy Pop, who you never see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was a you know full-on action CGI thing. Um, but then again, you know, that, uh, it's a single POV story. 
And so um, I knew that I could make this multi POV thing work. And you, you, you experience the story through the eyes of the central characters. It's not everybody. It's the central characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the narrative structure of the, um, of the film, it is Ray on the ground um, between life and death looking back to how events brought him to this point of near death. Yeah. And he's looking back from a nibs, a, 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 a niscient, um, bird's eye view, looking down on the scene, on the ground, looking at the scene from the outside. And then he's in the scene and he's seeing the scene through his own eyes and through other people's eyes and going, okay, that's how it happened. And she saw this and I was like this and I saw that and I saw that, but nobody else did. And and so it becomes, in a way, his formulating a uh, or editing together a film from a different perspective, and and I, that really intrigued me in um, in in the sense of uh, remaking a film in your own head mm. uh, from different POVs. <clears throat> no, totally, because because obviously his as as we get as we get used to that as a way of watching the film, then mm. as you begin to reveal stuff about about Ray's character, it, it, we begin to, the, the point of looking and that point of view becomes all the more important because of what he sees as opposed to what other people don't see, as the case may be. Yeah. Which is and, and, Yeah, totally. And, and Francois Truffaut, interestingly enough, um, said, well, it's not so much um, seeing through the eyes of the character that's important it's the character looking back at you, the audience, that's important because you are actually um, being observed by them and you are reading into their face, into their eyes, the story that you are following. Um, so it's not about you know, following the story necessarily through somebody's eyes, POV, that you're being shown. It's about what you're seeing and their reflection back towards you. And I thought that was that was really interesting because nobody had said that before. No, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Now, in the spirit of your movie, you're literally yeah. taking it on on a on the tour yourself, aren't you? So, do you want to tell how people can see Burning Men? Yes, Burning Men on the road tour um, with Q and A's um, starts on the first of March mm-hmm. uh, at Peckham Plex, South London, mm-hmm. um, not far from um, Deptford, where the boys start out. And uh, it's playing in Deptford for a whole week, um, every night. And we've got screenings um, around the country, sometimes up the route that we went. So Norwich, um, Newcastle, um, and uh, diverting off to Northampton, um, to Brighton, Bath, um, you know, well, we're zipping around now. Yeah, we are literally. We'll put, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can see where it's playing. Yeah, and 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 a couple of um, other people will be joining me on the Q and A. Um, actors, but also um, the composer of the soundtrack, the fantastic Justin Adams, um, who's going to be in Bath and also in um, Norwich. Um, Justin Adams, right hand man to Robert Plant. Um, co-writer and co-producer of Robert Plant's last couple of albums. And um, interesting how we came to Robert because um, I was 
as filmmakers do, we're in the edit suite and we're looking for a soundtrack for the movie and we use temporary soundtracks. We use temporary music from, you know, the library. And I couldn't find the guitar sound that I wanted, which was, for want of a better description, Paris, Texas meets, um, Paris, Texas meets, um, Neil Young's Dead Man. Okay. Well, that's a good description. Yeah, that kind of vibe, that sort of atmospheric guitar vibe. And uh, Neil Spencer um, said, well, look, I'll send you over a bunch of CDs that I've got with different things and see if there's anything you like. And one of these CDs was this album called Ribbons by Justin Adams. And it was so perfectly matched to the pictures um, that it became our soundtrack. And then I said to Neil, well, who's his manager how do we get hold of him i'd love to love him to actually do some original composing on this and neil contacted his manager and then i met with justin and he said i'd love to do it i you know showed him a rough cut of the movie um with bits of ribbons in there um and he said yeah up for it and so so it was a fortuitous meeting of minds really and uh and then i let him go off and uh, record the soundtrack at Real World Studios, Peter, Gra- Peter Gabriel Studios in Box near Bath, um, two weeks, and I didn't mess in. I just said, um, just do your stuff with it. I love whatever you'll do. Fantastic. And, and that was it, and he came back with it, and it was just storming. Available on vinyl now. <laughs> cool. Okay, so the, so the score for the film is available on vinyl. Uh, yep. The film's out from the first week of March, and we'll put a link in the show notes so people can see the dates, and hopefully those listening can find somewhere local to them. But beyond that that cinema tour, how else can people see the movie in the near future? Um, 18th of March is digital release day, so okay. on all digital platforms, 18th of March. Brilliant. Um, the uh, vinyl's available from the 22nd of February, but digital will be a week before that. Cool. iTunes. Yeah. Well, look, well, look, thank you very much, Jeremy, for telling us about Burning Men. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.